What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth. Uh, This is two Midnight Myths in as many weeks, so look at us go. We're doing a little happy dance in the studio. Absolutely. We want to give you as much sweet Midnight Myth content as we can, given the craziness and hecticness of our life. And last week, we did our episode on Big Fish. This is a companion piece. This is a Midnight Myth meditation. It might be a little bit shorter in length, inspired by our conversation from last week, And in fact, we had an entire segment planned, I had planned, that we just ran out of time and couldn't get to, so we decided that we would bring it as somewhat of a two-parter here. So please, make sure you have seen the 2003 um, Tim Burton movie, Big Fish, and make sure you have listened to episode 209, Drying Out, which is our Big Fish episode prior to listening to this because we're just going to assume you've seen the movie and listened to that episode, and we're not going to do our typical recap and doesn't hold up and then analysis. We're going to dive right into the content today and the theme that we want to talk about, which is going to be about understanding the difference, if there is any, between myth and folklore and asking the question, What type of storytelling does the character Edward Bloom do? As we recall, he tells his entire life through these fantastical, impossible, magical stories. So what is Edward Bloom telling? Is he telling myths? Is he telling folklore? And then from there, what type of storytelling is big myth, or big myth, big fish engaged in? Is it myth? Is it folklore? Obviously, at its core, it's a movie, it's a film before anything else. And I'm really excited to do this. I have a lot of different ways that we can frame this conversation. I have a lot of thoughts about this subject. I know Laurel has a lot of thoughts about this subject. And I'm ready to roll up the sleeves and do the meditation. What type of storyteller is Edward Bloom? A folklorist or a mythologist? But before we get too deep into that, Laurel... Do your thing. Yeah, my thing is that we would love to hear from you. We are on the World Wide Web at MidnightMyth.com. We're on social media at The Midnight Myth on Twitter and at Midnight Myth Podcast on Instagram. We're also on Facebook. So please drop us a line. We would love to hear from you. 
And then keep your eyes out for our other projects. So I work on sleep and sorcery, folklore and fantasy inspired sleep stories. That's on its own feed. And you can also find it on Insight Timer and YouTube. And then Derek has the continuing project, The Wheel of Ka, with his co-host, Steve. We said this last week, but I'm still stoked about it. They are reading my favorite Stephen King book right now, 112263, which is just extraordinary. And they are going to kill it with that discussion. So I can't wait for that episode to come out. They also recently came out with an episode on The Shining. So definitely check out The Wheel of Ka. Awesome. And we are going to have our first part episode on 112263 soon. As soon as Steve and I can actually find time to sit down to record it, we're just trying to get the schedules to line up, and they haven't quite yet. Everybody's got babies. so Everyone's got babies and busy lives. Let's dive right into it. I don't want to waste any time. So one of the first things that I was struck with in Big Fish, watching it for the Midnight Myth, was trying to figure out, is Edward Bloom telling myths, and is Edward Bloom telling folklore, and is there even a difference? And how can we understand the difference if there is? In one scene, William Bloom, the son, throws at his father, we talked about this a little bit last week, you know, um, paraphrasing here, Dad, most people, when talking about their lives, don't tell complex mythologies. And he uses the term mythologies there. And that really got me thinking because I always felt like this was kind of a folk tale. This wasn't really a mythic style story, but then his son called it a complex mythology. And so I went back and I really started looking at trying to find the difference between myth and the difference between folklore. And how can we understand the difference and should there be a difference? And my goodness, there's a lot of literature out there. I read of as much of it as I could, but I don't even think I scratched the surface. I didn't realize how many brilliant people have been trying to define and understand this difference. If you go to a college, there could be a mythologist. There could be a folklorist. They might be working together. They might overlap and blend some have argued there is no difference. There shouldn't be a difference. Why are we separating myth and folklore? And, you know, what types of stories we are telling is irrelevant, but what do the stories say that matters, etc. I want to take it um, as a sort of presupposition, as a sort of um, given before we start this argument that there is a difference between myth and folklore. And I want to try to understand that difference. Now, if at the end of this discussion, we want to go back and revise it and say, maybe that presupposition is inaccurate, I'm okay. But let's start with, okay, let's assume there's a difference. And what are the generally accepted differences? And I think it's, it has to do with a few key things. Let's first talk about what's similar between folklore and myth. The central component between a folklore and a myth, the thing that they share most in common, is that they are stories communicated verbally. One person must tell another person via word of mouth for it to be a myth or a piece of folklore, and it must be a story. It doesn't necessarily have to have a beginning, middle, and end. It doesn't have to have be a cohesive narrative, but one person tells another person a story we are engaging in either myth or folklore. 
So then what separates it out? Found this great quote from this uh, scholar named William Bosco about myths, and I'm going to quote it. Myths are the embodiment of dogma. They are usually sacred, and they are often associated with theology and ritual, end quote. Myths, according to Bosco and many others, deal with etological questions, the origins of things. They deal in a large and grand scale. Where did the world come from? Where did evil come from? Right? Where do, did our culture come from? How are we as a people supposed to act in the world? What defines us as a set people in the world? Myths have some element of religion to it. Though myth predates religion as we know it today, myth is laying the groundwork of what would become religion. Ancient Near East mythologists and theologists study the Torah or the uh, Old Testament. They study these texts, though from fairly different lenses. A theologist is assuming some truthness to it um, inherently, and a mythologist is not really caring about whether or not Noah was real is not the question they're trying to answer, but they're both going to study these texts. So myths will make their ways into texts that would then go on to form ancient and then medieval and then now modern religion. And they're interested in finding the answers to the largest questions that we all need to face. Folklore is smaller in scale and scope. Folklore is not engaged in answering the very big questions. It's not trying to find its way into where we are in the universe, what our purpose is in the universe. Folklore is engaging in a storytelling that can be everything from an apple a day keeps the doctor away um, to that sound at the middle of the night is a ghost train that runs through the woods because a train, a train crashed there, and everything in between there. So folklore is smaller in scale. Folklore is more malleable in that more things could be considered folklore than can be considered myth from these definitions. And folklore is not engaging in etological um, discussions. It's not trying to explain the origins of things, in particular the big, big things, both can be understood as understanding how people communicate in both mythic and folkloric terms. It says a lot about a group of people. It says a lot about their concerns. It says a lot about their culture and where they are in the world, how they view themselves in the world, how they interact in the world. The myth and folklore of the Iroquois are going to look very different from the myth and folklore of ancient Greece. And both can be studied to understand what was it like to be an Iroquois? What was it like to be in ancient Greece? And they both will have myth and folklore. One thing that is common is that they do tend to walk together. Meaning that where you're going to find myth, you're probably going to find folklore. And where you're going to find folklore, you're probably going to find myth. Um, before we go into, I think, how Edward Bloom uses storytelling and what examples we can pull out and whether or not we're seeing both mythic or folkloric storytelling. Uh, I just want to know, do you have any thoughts on the research that I've done? Anything that you want to amend before we get to part two 
what type of storytelling is Edward Bloom doing? Yes, absolutely. Thank you for all of that. It's super clear and super thoughtful. I want to draw a bit of a distinction uh, between the terms folklore and folktale because they are frequently used interchangeably and I think we're going to use both in in interchangeable ways and also in alternating ways in this discussion, but the word folklore is so capacious, right? So folklore is not just stories or aphorisms, it's also food, it's also clothing. Folklore is culture, right? It is a transmitted set of values, customs, and traditions that get passed through oral and practicing almost ritualistic uh, uh, transmission styles. So anything from the, the story that I tell you about the ghost train to how we decorate our Christmas tree can be folklore depending on how you define the folk unit. I think we touched on this briefly last week in the Big Fish discussion, but the, the folk unit can be defined as well in so many ways. It can be the people living in a town like Belfast with their time capsule Big Fish statue. It can be the people of an entire nation, or it can be as small as the family unit or a neighborhood. Sesame Street has its folklore, right? Because they are a neighborhood. We had a neighborhood that had its own folklore on our street in South Philly, and we have that now. So looking at these different folk groups can help us understand how their traditions, customs, and values are transmitted through means that include storytelling, but also reach beyond the borders of storytelling. So we'll talk about that kind of thing, and then we'll also talk about the folk tale, which you laid out has its own set of common characteristics between the different folk groups that it passes through, but then is somehow distinct from myth. When you say that folklore can be clothing, I just want to follow up to make sure I understand that. And I want to give an example of what I mean and see if this is what you're going with. So next week, the Philadelphia Eagles are playing the Kansas City Chiefs in the Super Bowl. We are Philadelphians. We live just outside the city. I have been born and raised in this area of the world, and I am an Eagles fan to my core. A saying that we have is that we bleed Eagles green. Sounds like a piece of folklore. We don't literally bleed Eagles green, but it lets us know that Eagles is in our blood. We are both, as we are recording this, wearing Eagles gear. We're both wearing Eagles sweatshirts as we record this. They have the Eagles insignia on it. Um, would you say that by us wearing the Eagles gear, we are engaging in folklore? I kind of would. And also, this sweater that I'm wearing now, I will not be wearing on game day because we do not have a good track record of winning while I wear this sweatshirt. So I'm going to wear a different Eagles sweatshirt. So that in itself is folklore. What I mean about clothing, too, though, is a little more cultural. Usually the way I was thinking about positioning that think, you know, if we have a culture where weaving is really important, the way clothing is put together and the way that you display your culture and your story through the clothing that you wear, whether that has something to do with your ethnic or national origin, or that has something to do with your allegiances in some way. So, okay. So the fact that we're just wearing the Eagles gear itself is not engaging in folklore. Yeah, not necessarily. But the fact that I wear Eagles gear pretty much all year round no matter where I'm at, 
And no matter where I have traveled to, and no matter what period of time it was in the calendar year, so it could be winter, spring, summer, or fall, I could be anywhere as far as Rome and anywhere as close as Maryland, and someone will always see my Eagles gear and give me a go birds. Always. Every single time. That happened to me in the New Orleans airport a couple weeks ago. Every time I have ever traveled anywhere and worn Eagles gear, a random person that I have never met before sees the Eagles gear and says, go birds. And all of a sudden you have this affinity built because you have this shared culture. And like the distinctions, you know, we're not here to discuss the distinctions between folklore and culture tonight because there are folklorists who study this. But they are, in my view, so linked and the way that they are used and the way that they're studied are so linked. So I just wanted to bring that in, especially as we get into the distinctions between folktale, folklore, and myth. I just want to be thoughtful and intentional about how we interchange those words. And one thing that both folklore and myth share in common is they're not really engaged in, they're both epistemological in their very nature, in that they're they're questions about knowledge. How do we know what we know? So the fact that I wear Eagles gear, someone looks at that and the folklore tradition would tell them this person has to know what the term go birds means. And because of that, we're engaging in a form of epistemology, but veracity is not really the, the issue, which is is it fundamentally true in an objective sense? So if you are engaging in a piece of folklore, it doesn't matter if it's real or not in a uh, objective sense, just as in if you're engaging in a piece of myth, it doesn't really matter how truthful it is or isn't. I know that sounds like I might be splitting philosophical hairs, but it's the core conflict in the movie Big Fish is that someone tells these we'll discuss myths versus folklore, which are they? And one person says, these are not true. And while one person saying this is not true is correct, one is engaging in a type of of veracity. He wants to know how true these are or are not, where another one is engaging in a type of uh, storytelling that would embellish the positive characteristics of the self while diminishing the negative characteristics of the self. Let us then move into Edward Bloom. And it might be fun to kind of take one or two of the stories he tells and say, what type of story is this? I will say, at the onset of these definitions, I lean toward Edward Bloom, the folklorist, as opposed to the, the mythologist. And the reason is, is there's nothing really sacred to what Edward Bloom is doing, There's nothing that's dealing with the largest philosophical questions of where did we come from, the origin of the world, the origin of a group of people, the origin of phenomenon. None of those seem to be questions his stories are engaging in, and none of them um, are going to be involved in any uh, religious or mythological ritual. They are all inherently secular stories. And because they are secular, that they are smaller in scope, it leans right out of the onset to Edward Bloom doesn't tell myth, he tells folklores. And when William describes them as complex mythologies, 
he is using myth in the most derogatory context. He is going right up to the point of saying, you're so close to lying that the best word I have is mythology. And he calls him just like Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny, and including all the disappointment. So he says, you are telling me these stories, they're complex, they're interwoven, they kind of operate like myths, but in the end, he's really just saying, you're not being true. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So let's take a, well, let me say before I take one of the stories to try to pick it apart, um, would you agree with that? No. Go on. I lean toward Edward Bloom, the myth maker. And I think maybe you'll convince me otherwise by the end of this conversation, because that in itself was a pretty good opening argument that there is not inherently something sacred or religious or spiritual about the stories that Edward tells. But I do believe, and we talked about this in our discussion last week, that the primary themes that arise throughout the stories that he tells are myth themes, right? They are mythological echoes and they pull from universal myths rather than folk tale and fairy tale types. Um, so I, I would also say, you know, I don't know what stories you want to dive into, but they also engage with, in a more abstract way, really big ideas about love about the afterlife um, and about, you know, they're, they're not as direct as some myths that we have passed down to us, but I think they are approaching those core concepts of humanity in ways that a folktale doesn't always do. All right. Well, then let's get into it. Um, and I am going to say that I, I am not going to approach this conversation dogmatically. I think it is open to interpretation. A story I'd like to start with, if, if this is okay with you, and I could be persuaded if there's another one that you want to do, is the story of the witch with the eye. Let's do it. Let me just recap this. This is a story that Edward Bloom tells. He and a bunch of his childhood friends, they approach a dilapidated old house said to have a witch with a magical eye, that if glass eye, that if you looked into this eye, it would show you how you're going to die. In this story, Edward Bloom volunteers to go and see the witch when she opens up. Instead of being fearful, trying to dominate the witch, trying to scare the witch, he simply is kind to her and has a conversation with her and saying, hey, can you actually come and show my friends that you are the witch and I did actually come up here because he is not afraid of her as well. The witch, seemingly moved by the bravery and kindness of this young boy, follows Edward Bloom in which she shows her magical eye and these characters all see how they're going to die. Then Edward Bloom walks the witch kindly back to her home and then asks, can I see as well? And he sees how he will die in the glass eye. And instead of being fearful or scared, he just goes kind of, huh? And throughout the rest of the stories, Edward Bloom, when approached with dangerous scenarios, 
that would normally make people incredibly afraid with the foreknowledge of how he is going to die, realizing this is not how I die, hence I shouldn't be afraid, and this allows him to be extraordinarily brave in how he approaches the challenges of the stories that will come afterwards. That would be the story. Now, where are you leaning? Is this one story folklore or is it myth? What is it closer to? So I think there's something I'm going to wrap all of this in, in that I think the stories themselves are myths, are mythic, and that the method of transmission is folklore. I know that is, I, I know, oh, I know. I'm not liking that. But I think this story is a myth. I okay. Feel, I, so I feel like that answer there, it was very lawyerly. Okay. I'm going to try to wrap back around to that, but I'm going to first answer I'm, your question. I'm so, let me give you space. I'm I, sorry. I think that story is a myth. What does the witch with the eye make you think of? The fates, right? She has access to destiny, to fate, to give people knowledge, foreknowledge of their death, which is something that was associated with goddesses and primordial spirits in ancient mythologies. Also it being associated with an eye. That also calls to mind Odin, who has great knowledge because he sacrificed an eye to the well of Mimir. All of these extremely mythic uh, themes that are coming through from universality. Then you compare Edward Bloom as this larger-than-life figure who knows his death and therefore is not afraid of any challenge that comes to him, which is very much like those great heroes like Finn McCool, like Odin, like Thor, like Perseus, like Heracles. These huge heroes who are granted with some supernatural knowledge or power that allows them to go through life and complete their tasks better than any other mortal would. I'll also bring in the fact that Helena Bonham Carter plays the old witch and then also plays the young Jenny and also plays the middle-aged Jenny who uh, goes through a, a close to love affair with Edward Bloom and then grows old uh, pining for him. This is very much the maiden mother crone archetype of these goddess-centered mythologies and goddess-centered spiritual traditions, particularly neo-paganism, and Wicca has, has uh, wrapped this triple goddess into it, the maiden mother and crone archetypes, these three different expressions of womanhood. So I, that's what I'll put out there. I think it's a myth. Interesting, you know, and I, I think to piggyback off of that, um, Another myth, you mentioned Perseus. The witch with the eye reminds me that how Perseus on his travels to go and slay the Gorgon has to see the witches who share that eye. Yeah, the gray. And they have to give him the foreknowledge that he needs so that he can arm and equip himself with knowledge to then go and uh, slay the Gorgon. And I think that I think there is that sort of quality that feels like this story is rooted in these other myths. It has all of these hallmarks that you see heroes in myths have to do. He has to cross a threshold into a dangerous and unknown territory. This dangerous and unknown territory gets him to a place that's primordial in nature where magic, past, present, and future all seem to coalesce and they sort of seem to blend. 
And in it, he has to use his wits, not his brute strength. Very reminiscent of many Greek heroes in particular in the Greek myths, has to use his wits to overcome this, not use brute strength, and has to use another central characteristic of Edward Bloom, unique, not in the Greeks, is his kindness. So it's it'll, it sets up this origin story for who this hero, Edward Bloom, will be and what his core attributes will be and how this hero will get out of every jam that he gets into. Kindness, bravery, and wit are the three characteristics of this. And um, he is able to, unlike the other characters, look into the abyss and see his end and not feel fear. And that bravery in and of itself will character him through th- carry him through that. However, I would agree that this part of it feels like other myths that were told. However, Edward Bloom as a character doesn't go on to then found a city which has to then be Edward Bloom's and carry on Edward Bloomness, where people look around and say, why are we this way? It's because Edward Bloom founded us in the way that Perseus, Theseus, Jason, and Hercules, Heracles, I should say, all have to, or Hector, or Aeneas. Rather, this is a person telling one story to a small group of people that then those people, um, those people then just go on and live their lives. If that witch becomes the site of an oracle by which other people make pilgrimage to, and then they say, why are we doing this? Because this is where Edward Bloom saw his fate. We must follow in it. Then we're looking at a myth. I think the fact, or something that crosses more into myth. I think the fact that Edward Bloom is clearly someone who has read a lot of stories and is drawing his story based upon the others and using myth in the way he tells the story does not itself make it, does not make itself a myth. I think it is more folklore because it's secular, because it's personal, because it's small in scope. I think makes me lean more towards folklore inspired by myth rather than a myth. And I accused you of being lawyerly, so yeah, but I that's, apologize. That's kind of why I'm splitting those hairs, because I think if you took the stories in an isolated manner, you pulled them out of here, and you, you, you imagined that someone had told this around a campfire 2,000 years ago, and then the stories had spread, you would call them myths, right? But because they are transmitted within a family unit and within an extended, like, chosen family unit... That's why I split those hairs within like the idea that the stories are myths, but the method of transmission is folklore. Because this is a modern story, more or less. It takes place in the modern world, and it is not necessarily tied to origin stories of great heroes, men, and cities, but it spreads in its own contained, uh, yet compact and important widespread family unit. Does that make sense? Yes. It's in other words, it's harder for there to be a true modern myth and it is easier for there to be modern folklore. Folklore can still exist and exist harmoniously in the modern world where myth is a lot harder because 
we have accepted our sort of version of myth. So if you are a Christian, you have your Christian stories, and those explain the origin of the world, and that's that. If you are a religious nun, you have none of those, and you reject all of them, and vice versa. You could say that of any world religion. So it's harder for there to be myths, and in particular, non-secular myths, in where we are at currently and how we understand our place in the world. Science tells us we're a bunch of molecules bouncing around in a closed deterministic system. Religion tells us we were from uh, this, this God or God, and this is how the world was made, and this is how we'll die, and this is the afterlife. And there's not a lot of wiggle room in any of that. However, I'd like to take an example of a true modern myth and a true modern myth that's an origin story of people that did come from the more modern world, not exactly this present day, but certainly influenced and shaped our current world and our conception of the world to say that it is still possible and highlight that as something very different from what Edward Bloom is doing. And that is the myth of George Washington and cherry the cherry tree. tree. I was like, please tell me you're talking about the cherry tree. The myth of George Washington and the cherry tree is that George Washington, as a young man, decided to chop down his father's favorite cherry tree. His father was upset. And what to George Washington saying, what happened? What happened to my cherry tree? And George Washington says, I cannot tell a lie. I told the cherry tree. I told the cherry tree. I chopped down the cherry tree, pardon me. And this story of George Washington and the cherry tree, chances of it happening are pretty much not zero, but as close to zero as you could have. And it tells an important tale about who George Washington is. He is someone who is decisive. He will chop down the tree. He is someone with great physical strength and characteristics. Chopping down the tree takes work. He did this presumably before his father found out he was chopping. Takes time to chop down a cherry tree. How did he do this and hide it from his dad? He was able to do this in secret. Once the tree is down, where did it go? He had to have chopped it up. So this is a man of great physical strength. And then ultimately, when his father confronts him with this defiant act, George Washington, the noble man that he is, says, I cannot tell a lie. He is someone that will never lie. He will always tell the truth no matter what. And this becomes a foundation of American male masculinity and the American male leader for a very long time. Now, I would argue that, doesn't, that myth is not something that current American leaders are engaged with at all, but I would submit that they probably would be better leaders if they were. I would submit that if they took that myth a little more seriously and asked, how could I be more like George Washington, who chopped down the cherry tree, our politics would be operating better than it does today. I would submit that that myth absolutely matters and can help guide, in particular, the people who are seeking authority, who's seeking political power, can help them serve those better rather than enriching themselves. And so I think it's a very important piece of myth. Yes, it's secular. There's no gods. There's no deities in it. But it marks every other characteristic of a mythic origin story that you would need. 
And it is very different than the stories of Edward Bloom, which is where I come back again to being closer to the side of Edward Bloom, the folklorist, who uses mythic tropes, than I do Edward Bloom, the mythmaker, who also uses folkloric tropes. Well, in this, you say that that story is not necessarily linked to religious or spiritual tradition, but this is where we have to bring in Dr. Hickel, right, who writes on civil religion and the American religion. So certainly there is a sacredness to the foundations of nations, and that is what you see with those like highly culturalized pagan religions too, that there is a sacredness to the foundations of Greece or the foundations of Rome as a nation state um, that is in its own way as important as the foundations of gods and um, phenomena and natural phenomena. Yeah, that's fair. So I lean towards folklore. You lean towards myth. That was the one story I really wanted to pick apart. And I wanted to pick that one apart because it had so many mythic themes to it. Um, but I still lean towards folklore. Did you have a story of Edward Bloom you wanted to do? Yes. I would like to talk about the town of Spectre. That, I think, is a really important one and one where I think both of our sides could possibly make a pretty decent argument. So I'll recap it, if you don't mind. If I get it wrong, I'm not very good at recaps. You can jump in and save me. But the story goes that Edward Bloom is destined for greater things, so he takes his friend, Carl the Giant, and with the key to the city and a knapsack on his back, he heads out of Ashton, Alabama. And on the road, he discovers the mouth of a forest and a road that looks really dilapidated and really spooky and terrifying. And all he knows about it is that there was a poet named Norther Winslow who took that road and he was on his way to Paris and he must have liked it because no one ever heard from him again. And he thought, you know, I know how I'm going to die. I might as well just take this road because I'm never going to come back this way anyway. So he gives his pack to the giant and Edward Bloom heads off into the spooky, scary forest, which is full of living trees and jumping spiders and all other sorts of spooky, scary, creepy crawlies. While he is traveling through here, he comes upon the ethereal, magical, moonlit town of Spectre. And in Spectre, everyone's shoes, everyone is barefoot, their shoes are hanging on a wire, and everyone is happy. There is no softer ground than town, and nobody ever leaves. There is delicious pie, there are dances in the, in the grass, there is a beautiful lake where you can go and write poetry and everybody is thrilled. Norther Winslow, the poet, is there and he never left. Part of this, also the mayor of Spectre comes up to Edward Bloom and checks his name off on a list and says, we weren't expecting you yet, you're early. And there is a palpable sense that this is being equated with a kind of afterlife. Edward is insistent that he's not meant to end up anywhere, but everyone says you're supposed to end up here. He even says no man is ready to meet the end of his life. So we talked about it last week as an equivalent of the land of the Lotus Eaters, as in the Odyssey, a great retelling of a myth. Uh, but then it also has these very heightened associations with heaven, or with the, uh, the Elysian fields, all of these kind of happy, peaceful afterlifes that echo through mythology and religion. 
Then also within this place, there is the lake where the fish woman swims. Uh, Edward sees her, this beautiful naked woman sitting in the lake and sees a snake going after her, so tries to rescue her. I think of Hercules wrestling the snakes in his, uh, in his cradle. And then she disappears and it turns out she's actually not a lady, she's a fish. She transforms by moonlight in order to entice people, much like the sirens. Last week we talked about Rusalka, we talked about uh, all kinds of these shape-shifting, uh, watery, fish-like figures in mythology. So th I, that went from my recap sort of to my argument about the mythic themes, but uh, why don't you weigh in on your side? I would add to that on the scene of Spectre, you get a sense when Edward is there as a young man, and keep in mind, Spectre comes back to the Edward Bloom story. Yeah, which I want to talk about that too. Um, that there is something off about it. You do get a sense of creepiness. Like a little bit of sinister something to of, it. Yeah. Of spookiness to it, which is why it feels like the Lotus Eaters to me, because it's just like, no, I could get seduced here, and I could stay here, but no, I really, this would not, I would not be free. There's something not right in this, and I need to escape it, and he does escape it, even though as he leaves, they say, you'll never find a better place than this, and Edward pretty much says, I, I don't expect to. That's not the point. He's on a journey, and he needs to complete his journey. He doesn't need to settle in the town of Spectre. So there is a little offness to it that makes it feel a little less heavenly, a little less Elysian fieldy, yeah. and more like, yeah, if you... Uh, if you eat the uh, the pie too much, you'll forget your past and you'll always be here. Yeah, yeah, it's a little underworldy and a little season one of The Good Place. Like it looks really nice, and then it's like, oh no, this is awful. Wait a minute, I There's can only leeches. eat. I can only eat frozen yogurt. <laughs> right, and the greatest poet of Ashton, Alabama, can only write three lines in twelve years. And uh, when he does see that poet again, he's given up poetry for crime. Yeah. So there is something about it. And then when he returns to it, he comments on how different it is seeing it at a different point of his life, which highlights the subjective nature of his stories. And he sees it very differently the second time, not as a young man. And there is some commentary in there that how big business has driven out little business. It's a very light touch in there, it's, the movie's not about that, but it says, hey, the better road was built, bigger businesses came in, and it economically crippled this little town, and it's just very different. And so he sets out trying to revitalize it as opposed to, as a young man, just wanting to reject it. And I do think this is a, a story that feels much more ripped out of the pages of myth. Right. I, I, I feel like... He, there's a lot of different ways to interpret it. It's right at the beginning of his grand adventure, and it it highlights the sort of nature of American small towns, the idea of the American small town being this idyllic, perfect place cut off from the rest of the world, and that when it finally does connect to the rest of the world, the rest of the world just devours and destroys it. And those are kind of some part of the stories that Americans tell each other about each other. And in this respect, I think it does lean closer. I'd be willing to lean this one closer to myth than folklore because it has the origin of the American small town. 
it being so idealized, but yet there's something wrong about it. And then conversely coming back saying, okay, big businesses have taken over the small towns and destroyed them is another part of these major fundamental stories that Americans tell each each other about each other. It's part of the make America great again movement from Donald Trump, which is idealizing these pasts and saying, if we could only roll black the clock and make America like this again, we will finally live in this perfect utopia that was. But as Edward Bloom tells us, as he shows us Spectre, it wasn't perfect. There was something off about it. It was a trap that he needed to escape, and he does escape. It is the island of the Lotus Eaters. It does have leeches and fish that can transform to summon you out into the water so they can drown you. There, there is danger and risk about it. And, um, you know, it's interesting how when Edward Bloom comes back to it, how he tries to recapture that sense of, of beautiness and sort of modernize it in a way that's non-political, in a way that is very generous and kind, um, in a way that's kind of reconciling these two different myths, this perfect small town that's really not, that's actually scary and conformist, and they, they're trying to brainwash you, and then the small town that's been destroyed by big businesses, and really saying like, no, there's a middle ground to this. We can actually salvage our town if we put some energy and effort into it. In other words, he's adding this layer to the myth of saying, we're Americans. If we work at it, we can get it done. Let's work at it. Let's fix these towns. It's not just big. We're not helpless victims. We can self-determine. Let's put the elbow grease into it. Let's actually paint the house. Let's actually pave the road. Let's actually invest in the schools. Let's actually do these things and we can revitalize these communities and not be the specter of the past and not be the specter of the present, but be this new version of America going forward. And he buys up every piece of real estate in the town. He goes through and he revitalizes every business. He makes sure everyone is fed and clothed and cared for. He enlists Carl the Giant to push Jenny's house back onto its foundation, a very Finn McCool, brand the blessed kind of act of giants just like leaping across uh, oceans, right? It's a very mythological idea. And then once he owns it all, he up and leaves. They say one day Edward Bloom left and never returned to the town he'd saved. He becomes their benefactor. He becomes their patron. It's not that much of a leap to say he's their patron saint or their patron god. He's not that far off from Athena founding Athens and giving them the olive. It is very mythic, though on that smaller, more folktale-esque scale, right? So there is a beautiful kind of tapestry being woven here where it says, where are the spaces? Where are those hidden and liminal spaces where American myth can flourish? And yet, how can those still be so divided from the American consciousness? I think it's a really fascinating thing that it's playing with here. I'll also just throw in here, just, the, just as a note, that the original novel by, uh, by Daniel Wallace, Big Fish, is called Big Fish, a novel of mythic proportions. But it's mythic proportions in one man. 
in one ordinary man who lives in a small town in Alabama and the people that he touched throughout his life. So I, I think I'm leaning at the, at the end of that story. I'm still feeling like the stories are rooted in myth, but that they are transmitted through folklore. And that there is so much additional folklore that bleeds through this story. You know, we were talking about before we recorded. Everything from the, uh, the circus to the, the way that Edward puts his thumb on Sandra's chin every time they see each other and he wants to comfort her, that is folklore within this small folk group and shared with us, the audience, because we are now part of the folk group. We are part of the folkloric community of the Big Fish family. Yeah, another thing I'll add that I think gives evidence to the story of Spectre being more mythic is the second half of the story of Spectre does not come from Edward. Right, it comes from Jenny. Which means that the story of him and what he did for Spectre has lived on among others, and other people are now telling the story of how Edward Bloom saved Spectre, which then starts to feel like it's leaning more towards a myth and less towards a piece of folklore. And I think where I'm at now, this has been a fascinating discussion. I don't have any other stories that I want to bring up to you. No, those two I thought were really illustrative. And the truth is we could pick any one of them and we could have this debate. I think this movie is a, and I think the way Edward Bloom tells stories is a blend of myth and folklore. Yeah. I think they are overlapping. I think that at points it can feel more mythic, at points it can feel more folkloric, and vice versa. And in that respect, going back to the beginning of the conversation and saying the presupposition is that these are two separate things, I think that, and for forgive me for being a little postmodern here, I think that that may not be the right angle. Um, that they are so separate and that we can define them so separately. I think myth and folklore live side by side, overlapping, interchanging, talking to each other as two different types of, two different subsets of the same epistemological system, the mythopoetic epistemological system. They are dealing with similar questions at different levels, at different layers and they can live side by side, at least in Big Fish, they can live side by side. I agree. I think these definitions are much more fluid than we've been trying to make them out throughout this conversation, and that's one of the great joys of it. I truly believe there is a significant distinction between myths and folk tales, but myths and mythologies are folklore, and that goes back to the distinction that I drew between folklore and folktale at the beginning because folklore, again, extremely capacious and it can enfold so many of our ways of relating to each other as members of the human species. I don't know if I agree with that per se. I don't want to say that there is folklore is like, in other words, folklore is the root of all of this and then there's these different branches springing out. No, I, I don't think I would say that. Because you said that if I understood you correctly, that myths are folklore, but yes. folklore can be more than myth. Meaning yeah. that like the understanding folklore is the root of understanding myth. 
I just don't like that metaphor. I think folklore is uh, you threw a bunch of you throw a bunch of these different things in a blanket and then you wrap it up into a knapsack. That's my metaphor. Yeah, but folklore carries more significance in this because if if a myth is a type of folklore, but there are other types of folklore. Yeah. Then folklore is bigger. Yeah. Uh, folklore philosophically, is bigger than than myth. myth. Yeah. And that's where I so that's where I did the root from it. Whatever you want to call it, you're saying that a lot of things can be folklore, and one type of folklore is myth. Yep, that's what I think. I don't know if I, and maybe this is the history guy in me. I don't know if I like that because I think myths um, were developed and established, codified and spoken from generation to generation, and then eventually written down from generation to generation. I think those did not spring from the well of folklore. I think those spring from the well of human fear, anxiety, and wonder about the universe. And I don't necessarily think folklore doesn't even need to engage in that. You know, folklore can be separate from that entirely, where myth has to, at least in part, derive from that well. And because it, I think it comes from a different place, I don't think it, it's fair to say that myth is a type of folklore. I think myth is humans trying to understand their role in the universe, and folklore can also deal with that, but doesn't have to. That's the way I would say it. I think there's only one way to solve that, this debate between us, and that's pistols at dawn, honestly. Oh, I thought you were going to say Twitter poll, but, you yeah. know. <laughs> we're going to New Jersey. <laughs> and we're going to draw pistols? <laughs> we're having a duel. I'm <laughs> slapping you with my glove as we speak. All right. Well, um, until next time. What do you think, Twitter uh, listeners? Be until next kind. Time. Don't go shooting each other over this. Be kind. <laughs>